Welcome to the Talk to Your Pharmacist podcast. We're dispensing stories of success from across the continuum of care. I'm your host, Hillary Blackburn. Thanks for joining us to learn from leaders throughout the pharmacy industry. Hey listeners, in this episode, you're going to hear from someone who wants to help unlock the full potential for pharmacists. I know you'll enjoy this discussion about how to better understand drug pricing and some of the other complex things happening within the drug channel. All right, so today we have a special guest on the Talk to Your Pharmacist podcast. Our guest is Antonio Chacha, who was born and raised in the world of pharmacy and has been crawling around pharmacies his entire life. After three years as a pharmacy technician and two years of pre-pharmacy curriculum, he diverted course graduating from The Ohio State University in 2007 with dual degrees in communications and political science before moving into the world of association management, eventually heading up government affairs for The Ohio Pharmacist Association, where his data analytics work helped lead state officials to audit and uncover 244 million in hidden prescription drug overcharges in the state Medicaid managed care program. After years of studying the pharmacy marketplace, Antonio became increasingly perplexed and concerned as he saw drug costs spiking while payouts to pharmacies were declining and more drugs were being excluded from planned coverage. Knowing something was being lost somewhere in the middle of an ever-growing transaction, he spent the last several years working to crack the drug pricing code and pull the rug out from what he believes is one of the most dysfunctional marketplaces in the world. Today, he serves as the president of Three Axis Advisors, a consulting firm that works with Medicaid fraud control units, provider groups, research firms, technology companies, law firms, investment analysts, employers, government agencies, benefit consultants, and private foundations to diagnose and eliminate inefficiencies and inappropriate incentives in the prescription drug supply chain. Within that capacity, he also serves as an advisor to the American Pharmacy Cooperative and the American Pharmacists Association. He's also the CEO and co-founder of 46 Brooklyn Research, a nonprofit organization dedicated to improving the transparency and accessibility of drug pricing data for the American public. Antonio, welcome to the Talk to Your Pharmacist podcast. Hey, Hillary, it's great to be with you. Well, thanks for joining us. And now that our listeners have heard a little bit about your background, maybe you could share any gaps from that intro or uh, maybe a little bit about your personal life. Yeah, I was going to say, I heard all that. And I was like, man, I feel like all I do is chase by kids all day. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um no, I, I think I think that uh, I think that well covers it. I, I look. I started in pharmacy. I think um, you know, I wanted to be a pharmacist like my dad. Um, mm-hmm. I hit organic chemistry and decided there were better things to do with my life. Um, <laughs> and you know, I actually switched to, to journalism. And you know, I've always valued what the pharmacist can do. And from my brief experience working behind the counter as a technician. I could see that pharmacists weren't really put in a position to do all the things that I thought were of the best value to the patient in the healthcare delivery system as a whole. And, you know, when I left pharmacy, when I left the pharmacy program at Ohio State, I did not anticipate making my way back, mm-hmm. but I uh, was able to catch on with a job at the Ohio Pharmacists Association. 
And, and really uh, over time, through no planning, just realized that this, this marketplace is really, really broken. And we don't utilize pharmacists the way that they should. And a lot of that has to do with how money flows through the prescription drug supply chain. And there's a, an old quote that is usually misattributed to Gandhi that, that, that says, you know, be the change that you want to see in this world. And when mm-hmm. I think about what we do, it is trying to fix something that isn't right and putting it in a, in a position where we as consumers or uh, we as you know, taxpayers and employers can get better bang for our buck when it comes to how we spend money in pharmacy. That doesn't just mean for drugs. It also means for the services that can and should be provided at a high level uh, by pharmacists. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, Antonio, I love, you know, your story because you understand pharmacy. You you grew up around it. And yet um, so many of us pharmacists have trouble telling our story. And so having somebody like you that, you know, has experience in communications uh, and a background in political science is just such a an asset um, because you can help us to more uh, clearly communicate that value. So uh, we thank you that you are, you know, stepping into that role. So, um, you know, drug pricing, I think that's probably one of the, the biggest things. Well, it, it hits because, um, you know, American public is like, oh, these drug prices, even though, uh, apparently it's still, you know, less than 10 or 20% of the healthcare spend, but it is, it's top of mind, you know, you insulin spending this drug pricing and it's so complex. And that's, I guess, why we've never been able to solve it. Um, tell us how you are shedding some light onto that because, you know, no, no one's ever quite figured that out. I love trying to, um, I also follow, uh, drug channels and he's got a really good diagram of, of the fall, you know, you always hear follow the money (laughs) and you can, it's like, here's a kickback there, pay this person. Tell us a little bit more about, you know, why drug pricing is, has been one of your focuses and how you have been helping to, um, you know, just better, uh, educate others around that. Well, you know, I, I, I don't want to say it started when I was a pharmacy tech because I was young and I was just thinking about what I was going to do on the weekends. And very rarely did I actually think about, you know, what was actually happening with the dollars and cents at the counter. But looking back, I, I have this perspective of it was very weird to me looking back how different patients could be getting the same medication and pay very different rates at that pharmacy counter. Um, and, and looking back, it didn't really make sense to me on how cost exposure was really decided. And really it was kind of like a game of roulette, you know, how, how, what, what's the patient going to be charged this time. And fast forward the tape, when I was working at the Ohio Pharmacists Association, you know, I was very cognizant of all of the public fervor around drug pricing. 
you know, pharmacists would oftentimes get swallowed up into that conversation. Mm -hmm. But as I talk to pharmacists, those who are working, you know, in the middle of the drug price, what was really fascinating to me was just the, the, the collective misunderstanding that even they have of how pricing is created, how even their purchasing is works or how their reimbursements work. I mean, imagine how crazy that is that the individual, the licensed healthcare professional who we as society say, this is the expert on the drug. The thing that we expect them to know is everything about that drug, how it interacts in the body, how it will interact with a certain disease state, how it will interact with other medications, what are best practices for taking that medication, but also look at them as the expert on the price of the drug, because if they don't know it, who the hell else knows about it? And the fact that pharmacists, regardless of practice setting, had little understanding of how pricing worked, to me at the time, I was like, what a failure of of our of our of our educational institutions but it's not it is a failure of our we could say our government our society to create a system with which it is understandable so that you don't have to look at the drug channels or uh you know map to to try and parse out where money goes and where it doesn't go who's getting you know what deals under the table or over the table we have, as, as citizens, allowed this system to become so convoluted that even the practitioner that is best positioned to understand it doesn't. And so mm-hmm. to me, what, what I viewed was a necessary, um, a necessary calling. I hate saying calling. It's not a calling. It's <laughs> uh, just it was an impulse to say, if nobody else is going to figure this out and simplify it, maybe we can. And we were fortunate or unfortunate, depending on how you want to look at it, that in our home state of Ohio, there was tremendous exigency to do so because as pharmacists were getting dramatically underpaid in that Medicaid program, the state was looking at their books saying, we're paying all that we can. And so somebody had to be exposed and called out for taking money out of the middle and inflating that cost. And we felt the best way to do that was through data. And that's really how it started. It was no plan other than we pay a lot of money for drugs. We deserve to have an itemized receipt for it. Right. Yeah. So so let's hit on that. So data obviously has become king, right? Uh, you know, I'm so grateful that uh, informatics programs have really been uh, well adopted and integrated into the, the pharmacy school curriculum. Um although I don't think that there's probably quite enough still on the drug supply chain, but uh, that's that, thankfully you're stepping in and, and others are helping that. But um, how did you um, start to look at that data? Um, you know, did you, so you've got, you know, this communications background, political science. Um, did you start working with some, um, you know, data analysts or, or what was it? Um, and, and how have you used that data to help tell the story? Well, so, you know, think of it this way and, 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 you know, at the, at the pharmacist association in Ohio, and I'm sure this would be similar for other state pharmacy association experiences as well. We tend to live in our own echo chambers. And so, you know, pharmacists from across the state would gather into a room in Columbus, Ohio and would tell each other about how great they are and how crazy the system is. 
And, mm-hmm. and very rarely was that message leaving that bubble. My job as a government affairs guy was to carry that message into the Ohio State House. And one of the things that pharmacists would, you know, uh, ask me to go talk about was if they buy a drug for $50 and get paid 30, you know, go fix it, right? That's the PBM ripping us off. And, you know, there wasn't a lot of sophistication to that other than anecdotes. You know, I here's a couple claims where I got underpaid. Again, go fix it. And that fascinated me that, you know, a PBM who has paid, you know, billions and billions of dollars to be the experts on the price of the drug could be so wrong when assigning value to that drug. You know, if again, if, if they don't know it, who then <laughs> who else does? So um, I actually linked up with a gentleman by the name of Eric Packman, who was running a small chain of pharmacies in the Dayton, Ohio area, who was non-pharmacist, who had an expertise in data analytics, actually came from Wall Street. Um, and there was another gentleman by the name of Matt Wine, who actually works works for me at 3Axis today, uh, who was a son of, a, of an independent pharmacist who was very, very savvy in data analytics. And between them and you know a few other pharmacists along the way, we were able to start uh, getting a better understanding of how their experience as pharmacies was 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 happening within our Medicaid program. Now that's one part of the problem. You know, you say, okay, I could walk into a state house and, and tell them, hey, these six-figure salary earners are getting underpaid. That's only going to take you so far. So the question then became, how do we provide context beyond, oh, pharmacists are getting underpaid? Well, we were able to find on CMS's website two data sets that really were instrumental in helping us uncover what was happening. The first was National Average Drug Acquisition Cost, or NADAC, which is an ongoing tracking of the invoice acquisition costs that retail pharmacies pay to put the drugs on the shelf. The other data set was CMS state drug utilization data, which provides a drug-by-drug, state-by-state, quarter-by-quarter breakdown of all the drugs that Medicaid programs are buying and the reported price with which they're purchasing them at. Now, when you stitch all of that together, all of a sudden you have a much better story than, hey, pharmacists are getting underpaid. What you have is what the state is being charged, perhaps what a pharmacy is being paid, and then what the actual cost of the medications are. Now you've got a sandwich and people can bite into that. And what we found was that while the costs of the medications were going down, while the payments to the pharmacies were going down, the state's costs were going up. So imagine if you're the state, you're saying we have a drug pricing problem, but until you have that type of data available to you, you have no idea what the source of that pain is coming from. And by stitching it all together, we were able to show that while they weren't the only ones responsible for the cost, PBMs were becoming a growing cancer within that itemized receipt of drug spend for the Ohio Medicaid Agency. And as we learned, other Medicaid programs across the country. All right. So that's remarkable, some of the things that you've been able to do in Ohio. But uh, what have you seen happening across the rest of the country? Have After you've created this blueprint, have other states been able to take up this and, uh, you know, make improvements uh, within their own states? So one of the really reassuring things is that, you know, I think for most pharmacists, you know, at least from what I could tell, they've always said, man, how come nobody's paying attention to these PBMs? How come nobody's paying attention to these PBMs? Well, the reality is, is that they are, especially if 
you're looking relative to prior experience. It really, 2016 was the first time that PBMs really hit the public ether. And if you recall, that's when Heather Bresch, the CEO of Mylan, started talking mm-hmm. about the complicated pricing that occurred with EpiPens. Mm-hmm. And, and that was really when the genie left the bottle. And all of a sudden, we started to have a much more savvy discourse and nuanced discourse around prescription drug pricing. Now, is mm-hmm. there still much more to be done? Absolutely. But really, I view that as the public introduction of PBMs into the into a more common vernacular. And today, they are front and center in Congress when we're talking about prescription drug pricing reform. And my goodness, in state Medicaid programs across the country, you know, everybody is having a laser focus on how to better uh, wrangle the PBM and drug pricing problem. And I put them together, PBM and drug pricing, because they work, those issues work in tandem with one another. You cannot solve drug pricing without solving PBMs, and you cannot solve PBMs without looking at drug pricing more broadly. So the, the good news is, is that we have really kind of, um, you know, leapt forward in terms of public understanding. And in states mm-hmm. across the country, we're seeing increased pushes for PBM licensure, increased pushes for uh, PBM transparency and bans on spread pricing. There are states looking at fiduciary obligations, prohibitions on steering, looking at um, opportunities to, you know, really curtail some of the poor incentives that PBMs have to add unnecessary cost and hassle into the system. And, you know, that that reckoning continues. Even in our home state of Ohio, where all this disruption has started, they're still grappling with these issues in redesigning their Medicaid program and looking at new ways that PBMs are overcharging the system through complex effective rate contracts. Hmm. Yeah, fascinating. Um, so... Yes, we know that that PBMs um, have drawn a lot of of scrutiny over the past several years, but there are other things happening in the marketplace uh, that are certainly some concerns. Uh, we've got industry consolidation and and vertical integration um, that's you know putting pharmacies uh, in a challenging position as well as you know many other. Uh, parts of the of the system. Um, tell us a little bit more about kind of your thoughts on on you know outside of of the PBM scope, um, maybe related to that. So I mean, when, when when I look at you know how we pay for drugs, yeah, we see a lot of issues with waste, right? We see a lot of issues with PBMs overcharging, but PBMs aren't the only ones that can overcharge by any stretch. What we have is a system that is really predicated upon arbitrage, you know, and what I mean by that, arbitrage is nothing more than taking advantage of an asymmetry of information. You know, you buy something at one end, you sell it for another end, you capture the gap. We look at that as spread pricing, but really that's how everything operates. You know, any pharmacist that looks at at these PBM contracts will tell you the dispensing fees are gone. They are, they are 25 cents, 50 cents, or nothing at this point, which means that the PBM's expectation is that you're going to make money off of buying low, selling high. And we don't really accommodate for a guaranteed payment for the actual value of a service that a pharmacist is providing. Unfortunately, what that means is that we have a system that is predicated upon filling more prescriptions, 
filling more of them and filling them faster and faster, which gets us into the conversation around workforce issues in pharmacy. Right now, the incentives are aligned in such a way that everybody from the pharmacy to the wholesaler to the drug maker to the PBM now all make money off of buying low, selling high, and doing that as as much as you possibly can. Well, that doesn't fit with the actual value that I think a pharmacist actually offers to the system. You know, we are looking at a a healthcare delivery system. We're trying to evolve into a more value-based model. And right now, our compensation model for pharmacists is largely fee-for-service and predicated, again, on, on volume and speed. And so part of the reason that, I, that, I, that I'm very interested in neutering the arbitrage opportunities on the drug itself is because I want opportunity for profit to be more concentrated on the value proposition back to the patient, because I know that pharmacists can do that. And I know that empowered pharmacists do that even better. Those that are well-staffed and have time to take care of patients usually end up doing that, but we don't pay for that today. So until we change the way that we pay for drugs, we'll never change the way that we pay for pharmacy. Mm, man, a lot of a lot of things to tackle. Uh, Ohio has been, uh, you know, leading the way, if you will, um, as have other states in helping to advance some of these models. You know, legislation has been passed, um, but we do have, you know. Even though policies are um, sometimes being adopted, we still have some challenges in uh, the implementation phase. Um, you know, any any uh, tips or, or guidance to, that you have on how other states could adopt some of the the policies and maybe you know get some examples of what's been working in Ohio from your time there. Yeah, as dorky as I could be on prescription drug prices, um, you know, my my real passion is trying to unlock the, the full potential of pharmacists as, as healthcare providers. Um, you know, it's it's kind of crazy looking back to say it was at least in Ohio, it was 2001 that immunizations, which were just flu shots, got had just gotten off the ground. And look how far we've come just 20 years later. You know, pharmacists are now administering all CDC recommended vaccines. They're looked at as the as the predominant provider of vaccines. But now we're also looking at long acting injectables. We're looking at um, at ongoing monitoring, chronic disease management. And and one of the uh, last laws I was help, uh, I was involved in in passing in Ohio before I left was allowing pharmacists to prescribe medications under collaborative agreements with physicians. They allow them to to prescribe any medication under the sun. Uh, in coordination with a physician in managing a patient's chronic disease. And then this, and then a follow-on to that was actually getting pharmacists the ability to be compensated for that under state provider laws. Um, and so you can imagine how, how uh, unwelcome my first ask must have been as I knocked on the doors of United Healthcare and CareSource and Centene and Molina, all of whom have, were really swallowed up in this PBMS um and some of them actually you know, having subsidiary companies causing that mess, but basically saying, look, the way that we pay for drugs is one thing, but here you have the most accessible healthcare provider, the second most educated healthcare provider sitting there. And the only expectation that you have of them is pass the pills across the counter and do more of it and do it faster. What if we pressed pause 
on that transaction. And now that you have the opportunity that a patient who has, you know, maybe three or four different disease states, 15 or 20 different medications, do you want to do something more with that opportunity than just shoo them out the door? And we brought that conversation in and talked about, you know, what some pharmacies do, you know, that they're not getting compensated for. We really started to, I think, change the, um, the perception of health plans for what pharmacists could really do. And so the ability to compensate them under the medical benefit, like other providers who have similar scopes of practice for particular services, really started to change the course of, A, the frictious relationship that we had with insurance companies at the time, but more importantly, start getting pharmacists to think differently about what pharmacy can be. The challenge in that is that once you're in this machine-oriented model of fill, 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 it's really hard to slow the gears of the machine to pull away and start doing things that aren't just traditional MTM and actually more of an engagement of managing a patient to a goal. And so and from a tips perspective, and I'll be, I'll be candid, while we've been very successful in working with some of the largest health plans in the country in getting pharmacists paid for clinical services, one of our challenges has been is that pharmacy has been very difficult to adapt to integrating that type of model into the current one, especially as we see increased complaints about workload and we see more constrained workforce availability in the pharmacy sector, but not just in pharmacy, but everywhere. And so in order to deliver on this, pharmacies need better financial visibility of how those services will be compensated today and in the future so they can invest in more staff, but then also the integrity of the, leg of the legacy model of fill, fill, fill also needs to be a little, has to be protected in order to build upon that foundation. It's been very difficult to get there, but I will tell you that success has primarily been around how can pharmacies just say, I don't care how I'm going to do it. I'm just going to start doing it. And what we've seen is for the pharmacies that have done that with help from the state association and, and, and working collaborative with the plans, that it's been successful. It's just really hard to hit the pause button and then move forward, uh, you know, right from jump. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Very helpful. So Antonio, um, can you tell us a little bit about, um, you know, maybe what are some of the things that, uh, three access advisors is, is being engaged on? How can, you know, how are y'all really looking to move the needle going forward? Um, what are some of the really um, exciting consulting projects that you have uh, on the horizon? Well, the big one that we just wrapped up was a project that we did for uh, APCI and APHA. It was a joint project where what we did is we looked at uh, over a thousand pharmacies worth of data to see, you know, look, pharmacists complain about DIR fees because, yeah, they're, they're, they're unpredictable. They can be a huge cut to the bottom line, et cetera. Um, but what we wanted to do is see what the impact of the patient was on DIR fees to see, okay, if the, pay, if the pharmacy is being paid an inflated amount at the point of sale, knowing that there's going to be a big DIR fee clawed back, the question then is when patients are paying out of pocket, are they getting the net price 
or are they getting the overinflated price at the pharmacy counter? And the answer is the overinflated price at the pharmacy counter. So one of the things that we, we really are trying to do is look at some of these industry dynamics that, yes, may impact pharmacy. But one thing that I would I would stress to pharmacists as they you know vent about the current system is broaden your horizon beyond how it impacts you and see how it impacts others as well, because you will find that many people don't understand the value that pharmacists provide. Many overlook pharmacists uh, as as you know truly valued members of the healthcare delivery system, although that has significantly changed since, since the pandemic. But I've always looked at pharmacists as being the Rodney Dangerfield uh, of healthcare. They really don't get the respect that they deserve. Uh, as we as as we work to change that, don't take it for granted that your value will be understood. And so when you are you know, seeing these DIR fees or you're seeing how a PBM might be taking advantage uh, or a wholesaler might be taking advantage of you for that matter, look at how that might impact the system more broadly than just yourself. On DIR fees, yes, it's a huge issue for, for pharmacies, but it is a massive issue for patients. And it is a mass, massive issue for the federal government who's paying based upon an overinflated rate. In the Medicaid program, we're seeing these big clawbacks occur as well. They're not necessarily DIR fees. But they're, you know, the pharmacists don't like the clawback. Well, what about the state Medicaid agency that's now paying in for inflated claims that represent the sticker price and not the post clawback price? Um, so a lot of our analytics projects are really centered around showing where the flow of money is, but not stopping at the pharmacy counter, looking at post adjudication reconciliation and see how that might impact an inflated price being paid by a patient and or a plan sponsor, Part D program, et cetera. Yeah. Fascinating. Wow. Well, um, this has been incredibly helpful. Um, are there any other things that, you know, if we've got pharmacists listeners, um, obviously student pharmacists as well, but what are some of the ways that maybe um, they may feel, you know, kind of siloed or, or think like, oh, what can I, what can I do to help? Um, do you have any guidance for them on how they can, you know, better make their voice heard and help contribute to this, solving this issue of, of, uh, drug pricing and, and having pharmacists be paid, uh, for the value that they bring? Yeah, I would, I, I would go back to, you know, one of the messages I had on the onset, which is be, be the change that you want to see in this world. You know, mm-hmm. pharmacists say all the time, the system's broken, the system's broken, we need it fixed. Well, what can you do to help fix that? Whether that's, you know, supporting your state national associations, that's one thing, and certainly should be a given at this point. But how can you better advocate for how the system needs to look? You know, one, or, or how might your actions at your own practice uh, help impact that change. I'll give you a perfect example. Nate Hux is, uh, is a pharmacist here in, in Ohio. He owns a pharmacy called Freedom Pharmacy in Pickerington. Uh, he used to own a pharmacy, was still owns a pharmacy called Pickerington Pharmacy. And that the Pickerington Pharmacy is a traditional independent pharmacy. They take insurance. You know, they deal with the same challenges that many other independents and, and chain pharmacies deal with. After he saw the the degree of control that PBMs had over the financial viability of his practice, but also how he engaged patients, he said, you know what? I don't like this. I'm going to open a new pharmacy. And so literally right next door, he opened another pharmacy called Freedom Pharmacy, where they don't take insurance. There are no PBMs. 
and they can offer true low cash prices to patients and work with them exactly how they want to work with them. So for patients in high deductible health plans or for patients that are underinsured, he is in complete control of his practice in doing exactly what he wants to do as a practitioner. Kyle McCormick and the team at Blueberry Pharmacy up in Pittsburgh are doing essentially the exact same thing. If you're looking for a bigger name brand on, on, on that model, look to Mark Cuban's Cost Plus Drug Company. While that is a mail order pharmacy and not necessarily what we would traditionally view as a conventional pharmacy, all of those activities by Freedom Pharmacy, Blueberry Pharmacy, and Mark Cuban's Cost Plus Drug Company are all endeavors to take control of their own destiny, to be the change that they want to see in this world. Another example would be the folks at Zeke's Pharmacy and Camden Village Pharmacies uh, in Ohio, uh, Franklin Pharmacy as well, Brewster Family Pharmacy as well. Those were some of the first pharmacies that started getting provider status programs off the ground where they said, look, this traditional, you know, lick stick poor model, you know, isn't going to continue to help our patients or help our, you know, our, our future. So we are going to press pause and we're going to do something materially different to change our practice to offer a higher value proposition back to the patient and the health plans that we work with. All of that was started by pharmacists saying, I'm going to change the way that I do business and I will walk into the unknown because I want to do something that is that is different. And I want to do something that is more gratifying. And I want to do something that I believe will help change the system for the better. Anybody listening to this can do that. You can come up with a million excuses for why you can't, but at the end of the day, you can. Um, I didn't start my consulting firm. I did not start a nonprofit. I did not start any of this with any plan in mind other than I said, I don't like what I'm currently doing and I believe I can change it by doing something different. And so I would challenge anybody, student or current practitioner alike, that if you don't like what you see in your own practice or in your own career or in your own world, just press pause and say, I am finally going to do something about it. Love it. Great advice. So Antonia, where can our listeners follow and find you? You're often sharing some great insights via Twitter or, you know, other postings. Where can people follow along? So uh, uh, Twitter, my handle is A underscore Chacha. That's C-I-A-C-C-I-A. Uh, what I typically advise folks to do, uh, check us out at threeaxisadvisors.com uh, or uh, via uh, our nonprofit, 46 Brooklyn Research, where we are consistently putting out new drug pricing reports and insights. Uh, you can access our materials and our dashboards at 46brooklyn.com. Awesome. Thank you so much, Antonio. It was such a pleasure to have you as a guest on the Talk to Your Pharmacist podcast. Thank you so much for having me and thank you for lending your voice uh, to help improve this profession as well. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Talk to Your Pharmacist, produced by the Pharmacy Advisory Group.